Well, this morning we're going to basically have an old-fashioned kind of Bible study together. This is part two of what we began last week in looking at the issues that we're finding on our news every day on race and rioting and racism and conflict, even with the COVID disagreements that people have been having. How do we make sense? The title for this morning is Biblical Discernment in a Broken World. Biblical Discernment in a Broken World. World. I wonder if that's something that you possess, that's something you have, that's something you own, that's something you can articulate. Biblical perspective, biblical discernment in a world that is very broken and continues to demonstrate itself as more broken each and every day. I want to begin just by anchoring our thoughts in Ecclesiastes, one of my favorite books in the Bible, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. This is a, a passage that most of us who are old enough Remember, because uh, the birds actually uh, created a song out of this, this uh, passage, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, but listen to it in its context of Solomon understanding the brokenness of the world in which he was leading. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there is an appointed time for everything and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together a time to be silent, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Solomon's point is simple, and yet it's profound. Our world is full of triumphs and tragedies, joys and sorrows, good times and bad times, justice and injustice, gain and loss, life and death, and all of those times have been appointed by God in His sovereignty. Our good and sovereign God has appointed all of these things. They are a part of living in a broken world, in a sinful world, in which He also, in tandem and in parallel, provides reprieve from the brokenness, giving us happiness and good things to enjoy. Paul told the Romans, in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation, our world, waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God, that final revealing of God's redemptive purposes in the end. For the creation was subjected to futility, that's Solomon's word in Ecclesiastes, for vanity. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. God is sovereign over that. In hope that the creation itself might also be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Paul affirmed what Solomon affirms, which is we live in a broken world and it's difficult. 
There is no question that our world is messed up. It is broken. It's mean. It's unfair. It's immoral. Sometimes it's just plain cruel. All you have to do is read the newspaper, watch the evening news, and they are reflections literally of a world that has gone mad. For the most part, instead of telling us what is new, which is the word behind the news, the news tells us what happened that was bad. But remember this, we are not the first generation to see how broken our world really is. Our grandparents lived in a world with Adolf Hitler. A bit more than 100 years ago, there was a civil war in our country and several civil wars happening in Europe since then and even right now. Mass genocide happening in South Africa. Go back to a a little further, you see a world that saw kings execute their wives for having a girl instead of a boy. A world where killing in the name of God was called Christian education or the Crusades. Let's remember that we are not the first people to wake up to see that our world is messed up. No matter how far you look back, the world has always been broken since the garden. A most difficult place in which to live and maintain proper perspective. That's important for us to remember that as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. I think sometimes we, we look around and we say, this is as bad as it's ever gotten. It really isn't as bad as it's ever gotten, nor is it as bad as it will be. One of the reasons that I, I love the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Bible, is because it is painfully honest. It doesn't skirt the issues. It doesn't skirt suffering. It doesn't skirt evil in our world. It doesn't try to rid us of pain by saying it doesn't exist, as the Christian scientists do. It tells us we live in a broken world and gives us instruction on how to navigate that world. This is no surprise to anyone, but we... We live in very troubling times. Where we are right now in looking at the world is so different than where we thought we would be in January, in February. The last few months have been crazy. Church has navigated the multiple dimensional factors of COVID-19. Then on top of that, we were all forced to have a reckoning still in our day on racism and culture. When the video surfaced just a few weeks ago of George Floyd being unjustly murdered by a police officer, I think the swelling pressure behind the dam of racial tension finally broke. And to be frank, the church at large, not just our church, is facing the potential of losing people on the political right and on the political left Because no matter what you tend to say, someone tends to be upset about that. And so, what we're going to try to do is let God say what He has said, and we can follow Him. I don't want to be on one side or the other. I'm sure you don't either. We want to be on God's side from His perspective. To be just blunt, I have never seen in my 40 plus years of ministry a more divisive time in the world in which we live, nor in the churches in which we find ourselves then today. I remember being in South Africa 
20 years ago, just after apartheid had been lifted, and hearing tales of, of such segregation and such racism that people of, of every race were, were, were terrified to even walk outside, and thick iron bars are still on the windows of every home there, and thinking, that's not America. And you begin wondering, is that, is that where we're headed? Well, for our time today in God's Word, I, I want to anchor us, if I can, just to, to think better about what we agree on by what God has said, regarding what God has said, to remind us that our theology, our statement of faith, is anchored in God and His Word, not to political allegiances. We're going to do a topical sermon this morning, and if you're a part of Mission Road Bible Church and you have been for long, you know that's a very... Um, outlier kind of sermon. We don't do a lot of those around here. We're usually verse by verse. We're finding ourselves in the Gospel of Mark, just picking up where we left off last week, every week. But sometimes it's important to stop and kind of systematize different things in the Scriptures. Really topical preaching done, I think, rightly is nothing other than public systematic theology. Us thinking rightly about how God collates his truth into our mind and we can take truth and truth and truth and stitch it together into a worldview. I've quoted Walt Kaiser probably a little bit too generously, honestly, uh, the last few weeks. Walt Kaiser has written that every preacher should preach a topical sermon only once every five years, then immediately repent. Now, I I, I, he's speaking tongue-in-cheek. But, but I agree with the sentiment that what we want to do is unpack God's Word as he wrote it, verse by verse, one paragraph at a time. But there are times to take things in the Scriptures, all over the Scriptures, weave them together into a lens in our worldview. So just a heads up, heads up there, is going, there, there will be lots of Scripture today. Um, we'll, we'll post this tomorrow on the website so that if you miss something, it'll all be written down for you. But we're going to be bouncing around. You can oil up the spines of your Bible, if you will, because we're going to be looking at a lot today just kind of to put it all in the blender to come out with a right view of thinking, right way of thinking about the trouble we see in our world. Let me start, before we get into our, even our outline, by this. 1 Timothy 2, Paul says in verse 1, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So Paul actually says to pray for political peace from our governing authorities so that we can be tranquil and peaceful not making a big deal out of our own grievances or preferences, we cannot be forced into making disturbances. And I'll talk about that in a moment. This is good and acceptable on the side of our God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given to us at the proper time. So one of the reasons that we need to think properly and pray for peace in our world is that we may lead tranquil and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. I I, I just want to share with you the burden that I feel oftentimes about issues like Facebook and social media. 
Are we really leading tranquil and quiet lives or are we trying to ring the bell so that people can hear us? I think about it in, 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 the, in the light of protesting. Is that a tranquil and quiet life when we're out protesting? How does this apply in our conversations? The goal is to not be noticed as, a, as an insurgent in the world. The goal is to be noticed as an evangelist in our relationships. We say it every week in our mission statement that Jesus Christ might come to have first place in every dimension of our life. That's what we do with what he's given us. We have so many voices speaking into our ears, so many voices that are, that are pounding into our heads for noticing. Let me just beg you that we need to hear God's voice as the loudest. Colossians 2.8 See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, a worldly way of thinking, empty deception, according to the tradition of men. That's humanism. According to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. In other words, Christ is to be the, the epicenter of our Christian worldview, and we're not to be taken captive by the fads and the philosophies and the political agendas of the day. We believe that there is biblical clarity on everything, anything. There's biblical sufficiency. 2 Peter 1, verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing, listen, that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That's sufficiency. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. In other words, the knowledge of God, which is only contained in the word of God, gives us sufficient reasons to be satisfied with God and not be troubled by the preferences and politics imposed on us in this world. Now let me say, just from the very beginning, racism is a sin. Also, it's not singularly a white-black problem. I've been around the world enough to know that it's between different cultures, different races, different ethnicities, different groups. It's a sin problem with a divine solution. So for the next few minutes, I want to help us find guidance from God God's word about the cultural issues we are facing. So here we go. We're going to move fast. We're going to look at 10 ways to sharpen biblical discernment in our broken world. 10 ways. I had 18 at first. <laughs> and and th there could be a lot more than that. But I tried to whittle it down to a good solid 10. This is a good head start for us to get, Get our minds around thinking biblically when we watch the news and read the papers. Ten ways to sharpen biblical discernment in our broken world. The first is this. Assume the depravity of man in our broken world. Let's assume the depravity of man in our broken world. In every sense, in every real possibility, in every real sense, every effort you and I make, think about this, every single effort you and I apply to our world to make it better is really an effort to replicate heaven on earth. We want to go back to the garden. We want to restore. We want to build things and make things and create things that are beautiful, that reflect the garden of Eden and anticipate the garden of God in heaven. 
We will never, however, create heaven on earth where everyone experiences a summer of love or an autumn of love or a winter of love or a, a spring of love, you name it. The only way to have peace with God and peace with each other is through the gospel. So our starting point as we think about sharpening our minds is to think about the world, people, groups, individuals, and to assume what the Bible assumes, and that is that all are sinners in need of a Savior. Look, I understand when we say, oh, he's such a good kid, and we say he's a nice guy. We're not going to take that out of our vocabulary, but we don't really mean he's a good kid or she's a good kid, or, or that's a good guy. They may be nice and kind, but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23 tells us. This doctrine is known as the depravity of man. But remember this, this doctrine does not mean that everyone is as bad as they could be, rather it means that everyone is culpable before God to answer for for sin. We studied in James last week. If you're guilty of one part of the law, you have become guilty of it all. It only takes one sin to be damned to hell. And God offers us salvation through his son. Psalm 51 5. I was brought forth in iniquity, David said. In sin, my mother conceived me. That doesn't mean that, that when his parents. Uh, uh, came together and he was the result, that that was sinful. It was in sin I was conceived. From the very moment of conception, I was leaning into sin. We've said it over and over in our parenting material. Uh, You can't do anything to mess up your kids as a parent. They they come that way. They come as sinners in need of a Savior. Mark chapter 7 Verse 21, Jesus said, From within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, and adulteries. We studied that in depth a few months ago, that Jesus says the heart is the residence of all evil. Jeremiah said in 17.9, The heart is more deceitful than all else, desperately sick. Who can even understand it? We don't even understand the depth of the depravity of our own hearts. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20, Solomon said, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on the earth who continually does good and who never sins. That anchor passage in Romans 3, right before all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What then? Are we better than they? Talking about the Jews who had been given much and still... We're not responsive to that? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Also, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. None who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have all become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they've not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, God's word, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. 
Paul weaves together several psalms there to basically make the point that we are all sinners, no exception. John 3.19, we could go all day on this. This is the judgment, Jesus said, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 8. They are altogether stupid and foolish. Down in verse 14 of, of Jeremiah 10. Every man is stupid, devoid of knowledge, and stupid in regard to righteousness. Isaiah 1 Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, raw wounds, not pressed down or bandaged or softened with oil. If that's not clear enough, Ephesians chapter 2 says, And you were, what? Dead in your trespasses and sins unresponsive to God, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, as believers, Paul looking back says, we also formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, by our very essence, children of wrath even as the rest." We are sinful individually. We are also sinful corporately. Again, back to the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the most painfully obvious books, honest books in the Bible regarding the sinfulness of man. Solomon was sobering and he was honest about the reality that because of sinfulness, there is unjust oppression in the world. Even as powerful a king as he was, He offered no societal solution for the injustices and injustices in his world. He understood that some would not experience true and genuine freedom until death. Listen to this, Ecclesiastes 4. Solomon says, Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression. That could be systemic racism, as some people call it. Acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of the oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who already had died more than the living who were still living. But better off than both of them is the one who's never even been born or existed who's never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. That's a profound statement. What's he saying? Is it better off not to live? No, no. It's better off to find peace and rest after our death if we hope in God. It doesn't mean that we we, we don't attempt to offer relief to those who are suffering. Of course we do when we can. We don't don't shy away from helping the poor, the afflicted, and our sphere of influence. But here's the important part. Solomon does not call for his subjects, his believers, to enact massive societal change. He puts suffering in the context of death and the need to be ready for eternity. Bottom line is we live in a sin-sick, cursed world, every individual and every society. 
And no matter what we do individually, what we do corporately, we will not make this world heaven. Secondly, recognize sinful prejudice in our broken world. That, that's important. Look, we, we did a whole study on this last week in James chapter 2. You can listen to that on our website if you like. Recognize sinful prejudice in our world. We talked about the fact that racism is just one branch off a bigger tree. The, the tree is prejudice, prejudging someone based on externals. That's the trunk. Racism is one of those. Ageism is one of those. Uh, sexism is one of those. Uh, xenophobia is one of those. You can name dozens and dozens of ways that people are prejudiced. James 2.1, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism, literally receiving the face or, or favoritism or prejudice. Down further in verse 8, he says, if you're fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, prejudice, we could even say in our vernacular racism, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. And he goes on to say, any single commitment makes you guilty of the whole. We've talked a lot about this, so I don't want to reduplicate all that, except to say racism is sin. The idea that one race is inferior to or superior to another is absolute sin. I really am not even sure there's a biblical category for race. We are all a part of the human race. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight is one of the most wonderful and profound realities your kids and maybe you and I ever sang when we were in the children's department. I just remember, the, think often of the scene in Revelation 7. Revelation 7, 9. John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation, and all tribes, and peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I've heard it said even recently, God is colorblind. Can I offer a different way of thinking about that? God is not colorblind. God created the, the degree of pigmentation and melanin in our skin for His glory. He loves color, all color. He created multiple levels of the expression of our skin tone for his own glory as the expression of his creativity. And that, as Roman, excuse me, Revelation 7 says, will be reflected in us worshiping together in heaven. God hates racism. So should we, but we need to recognize that that's a part of it in our world. It's just another expression of prejudging people. There are many expressions of that. Racism is one of them. And again, you can refer to last week's sermon for a more in-depth look at that. Thirdly, set realistic expectations for our broken world. 
How can we sharpen our biblical discernment? Set realistic expectations for our broken world. This may surprise some. There is a biblical category. Think about this. There is a biblical category in the mind of the Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of God's Word for unjust suffering this side of heaven, this side of eternity, in a broken world. Every person's sin will be paid for either by Jesus on the cross or by themselves in a Christless eternity called hell. Sin will be taken care of, but it will, we have no promise that sin will be taken care of in this world and in our experience. All we have to do is look back at the, the martyrs in the church, the, those who burned under Bloody Mary and the English Reformation. Ecclesiastes 3, back to our friend Solomon. Furthermore, I've seen under the sun that in the place of justice, he says there's wickedness. In the place of righteousness, there's wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. There's a day of accounting coming, but we're not promised that day during our lifetime. Listen to this promise. 2 Timothy chapter 3. You can read all the first 13 verses cover this. In verse 1, realize that in the last days difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. And then down in verse 13, he says, evil men will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. If we're expecting that we're going to go join some protests, change some laws, elect new officials, and everything will be better? (laughs) We're not reading the Bible. And in God's mysterious providence, he has ordered that we would experience the wackiness and the sinfulness of this world so that we will anticipate and long for the glory of heaven. Think of Isaiah 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call good, who call evil good, rather, and those who call good evil. Those who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. God is the only one who can establish the moral standards of this world. God is the only one who can call us sinners by nature. And God is the only one who can save sinners by his own gift of salvation. For a Christian to think that we can protest protest our way into a better world, we've not understood the Bible's pronounced expectations for the world in which we live. Evil men will proceed from bad to worse no matter how much we protest.
We're not called to fix the world. We're called to influence our sphere. We'll come back to that in a moment. A fourth way to sharpen our biblical discernment is to remember that Christian citizenship is not of our broken world. It's not of our broken world. This world is not our home. Right. We are pilgrims, strangers, aliens. We are not of this world. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship, Paul says, is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice our citizenship is there. We're waiting for Him when He comes. We're waiting to go to Him. We're not waiting for Him to make this world heaven. Now, a quick word, if I may, about a cultural phenomenon that has taken over the societal discussion, and that is the Black Lives Matter movement. I don't believe a Christian can be in partnership with the organization, the organization Black Lives Matters. That's not to say we don't hold the basic meaning of that phrase true. We do believe that black lives matter and red and yellow, black and white lives matter. That I, even, I don't even like saying all lives matter as much as saying each life matters to God because they were made in the image of God. We'll get to that in just a few. But saying the truth that black lives matter, which we would all affirm, is different than joining with this organization that has hijacked that truthful statement and made it a godless enemy of God and His Word. The statement, Black Lives Matter, must be distinguished from the organization. If you want to know why, let me quote to you from their website that was on their website as of 6 p.m. last night. This is basically their doctrinal statement. Quote, We make space for transgender brothers and sisters to participate and to lead friends with the LGBT movement. We are self-reflexive and do the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege, that's the belief that biology is what makes you male or female, and uplift black trans folk, especially black trans women who continue to be disproportionately impacted by trans antagonistic violence. We build a space, the website says, that affirms black women and is free of sexism, misogyny, and environments in which men are centered. They would be very much against a church like ours that believes in male leadership in the home and male leadership in the church. This is the one that disturbs me most. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure, mom, dad, children in one home, requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. In other words, they're, they're for the dissolving of the family. We foster a queer-affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. They are against the idea that heterosexuality is normative. I could go on and on, but I would say you're welcome to read it, but I wouldn't, wouldn't encourage you to do that. 
These people are enemies of God and enemies of God's values. I cannot see any value in a Christian partnering with this organization, joining with others to stand against injustice is one thing, loading, excuse me, loaning your testimony to a godless movement defeats the point of protesting and undermines the gospel. In short, to link up with this, this, this organization, I think, is to violate 2 Corinthians 6.14, which says, don't be equally yoked with unbelievers. Do not be bound together, 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, bound together with unbelievers. Literally yoked together. Remember, a yoke is, is a piece of wood that you would put over two cattle, two, two, two bulls, two cows, to have them pull you together. And if one was, um, if you're unequally yoked, that would be like putting one part of the piece of wood over a, a, a large bull and the other over a goat. That wouldn't be a good thing to do. You'd go in a circle because one would pull all the weight, right? Can't be equally yoked. Don't be yoked together, bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership, Paul asks, what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? So it's important to remember our citizenship, our partnership is with believers in the heavenly pursuit of saving people. Which brings logically to number five, creating biblical discernment. Clarify the mission of the church to our broken world. What are we about? What is the mission of the church? L- listen, this is very interesting. We're, we're almost through with our study of gospel, the gospel of Mark. Jesus did not undo all the injustices in his world. And watch this. He could have. Our message is not a political one. Our message is a spiritual one. All authority, Jesus says in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18, has been given to me in heaven on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. There's a non-racial statement. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The mission of the church is not to fix the world. I know that sounds odd. That's not our mission. Our mission is to bring people to the life-changing understanding of the gospel. We must be, however, on our knees in prayer. Listen, we need to pray for true justice. We need to pray for our government. We're commanded to do so. Pray for changes that that affect our good. Pray for righteous politicians. We need to pray for these things and elect these people. We need to pray for those who are oppressed, those who mourn. We need to pray for our own racial pride and insensitivities. But we need to be very careful to not confuse or conflate the mission of the church, which is to bring people the the true understanding of salvation forever with God and just fixing something in the world. Which brings us, obviously, to offering genuine hope to our broken world. Number six, the sixth way to sharpen our biblical focus and discernment. 
offering genuine hope to our broken world. A believer's contribution and offer to the world is found in our message. It's in the gospel. Now be careful. This doesn't mean that a Christian doesn't go dig a well for water in Africa. It doesn't mean that they don't vote their conscience. It doesn't mean that we don't help support causes that promote God's values. It doesn't mean we don't vote and elect people that we think will have better values for the culture. It doesn't mean that at all. It does mean, though, that we understand something. Even, think about this, even if you and I were able to solve all the racial injustice in the world, even if we were able to prevent homosexual marriages and relationships, even if we solved world hunger, even if we dissolved world poverty, even if we were to able to encourage everyone to just get along and be nice, but those people never understood and believed the gospel, we have not saved them from a Christless eternity and punishment in hell, and we have only done a microsecond of good in their eternity compared to life after death. We know the gospel. Remember the gospel, three things, facts, theology, response. The facts, Jesus is who the Bible says he is, God in flesh. The Bible says that he lived a sinless life for you and me to give us that perfectness, that perfection, that righteousness. It says on the cross, he took our sin and bore the penalty of that before God. He was punished for us instead of us. And to prove that it was true, he rose from the dead. Those are facts. The theology about that means that God in a mysterious way, receives Christ's righteousness to our account and puts our sin on, on the cross in Christ and exchanges his robes for mine as we sing. And our response is to repent and follow him, to give him our lives, to submit to him as Lord Listen, I trust, I hope, all of you have given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. If your goal is fixing the world rather than securing your soul, you are so misled and so mistaken. Seventh, we're to value the image or images, people, of God in our broken world. We spoke of this a little bit last week. In Genesis chapter 2, God says, let us make man in our image. That means that we are fundamentally different than the other animals he had just created. We have consciences, we bear guilt, we have language, we have an internal compass that points us to the reality of God's existence. We know that he's there and true, Romans 1 says. We are uniquely male and female, we have immortal souls, we are creative, we recognize beauty. Only humans understand aesthetics. We owe God acknowledgement. We owe God worship different than the animals do. We are made in his image. And when it comes to race, by the way, thinking of how the image of God bears on race, we need to remember that we are all descendants of Adam, according to Acts chapter 17, verse 26, which makes us all the same race. Acts 17, 26. And God made from one man, Adam, from one man we all came. Every nation, that's ethnicity, that's the word ethnos in the Greek. Every race came from one man. 
of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and ends and the boundaries of their habitation. Every life matters to God because we are all made in his image. And every life, therefore, consequently, should matter to you and me. There are no dregs of society and people beyond God's reach. Every life bears the image of Almighty God and should matter to us because each life matters to Him. Every life should be offered then the life-changing, soul-saving medicine of the gospel for the soul. Let's not let the evening news divide us, but rather believe that God is the one who created us from Adam and Eve. And we all are sinful, that's the negative side, and we all can be saved, that's the positive side. Number eight, I do think we need to become compassionate to those suffering from the brokenness of our world. Listen, we're not immune to seeing suffering. We're not blind to it. Christians must be compassionate people. We should never minimize or discount the hurts and experiences of others. A blood-bought believer of Jesus Christ should always be ready to be sensitive to those who are suffering. When I read an article that I read last, last week of a friend who I know very well, Who's a who's a black uh, uh, has a, a black son a black man in a, in a in a in a place where he sends his son out every night and says be careful where, where you walk be careful how you drive if you're pulled over you be careful because you live in a world that might treat you differently because of the color of your skin that should grieve us we should hate that in Job thirty Job's trying to make sense of his own suffering and the suffering in the world. And he does say something honorable in Job 30, verse 25. He says, Have I not wept for the ones whose life is hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? Romans 12, 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice and, and weep with those who weep. So convicted by Hebrews 13, 3. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. Think about that identification, that experience. He didn't say experience the sin that got them in prison. Remember the prisoners as those in prison with them. As though in prison with them. And those who are being ill-treated. We should be compassionate. We should care. We should pray for these folks. We should befriend these, these folks in any situation where they're, they're suffering. Every believer should care about the hurts and injustices in our world, but every believer's theology ought to inform our sensitivity that these pains are ultimately resolved in Jesus Christ. Sin is the real problem and the gospel is the real solution. 
Number nine, honor the two great loves in our broken world. You know what the two great loves are, right? Jesus outlined that in Matthew chapter 22. Verse 36, he was asked, Teacher, what's the great commandment of the law? He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, with all your, all your strength. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. I wonder what, how different our world would be if we just paid attention to those two simple commands. Luke says, after Jesus taught this, right after that, he told the story of the Good Samaritan, which involves cultural differences, racial differences, societal differences. Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. They stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also. These are the the religious elite in the society. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, ethnically different, racially different. They were the half-breeds who the Jews hated because they were compromisers. Who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. He came and bandaged him and his wounds and pouring oil and wine on them. He, he put him on his own beast and brought him to the inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took two denarii, two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three, Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? He said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then he said, go and do the same. This interaction is admirable for so many reasons. Across, it crossed racial lines, it crossed socioeconomic lines, it crossed cultural lines, it crossed safety lines, it crossed comfort lines in order to do what was compassionate and what was right. In order to love one another, to love our neighbor, to care for another. The Good Samaritan story illustrates for us that not all of our neighbors are the same as us and not all our neighbors are people we expect them to be. Our goal is to love God and love others. Which brings us to the principle of all of life. Glorify God in his broken world. Our goal is to glorify and please God, not men. Micah 6.8. He has told you, God says, oh man, what is good? God has articulated, here is a righteous lifestyle. Here's the good that you need to know and pursue. What is it? What does the Lord require of you? What is good is fulfilling the requirements of God. What are those? First thing, do justice. Please understand that. Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with your God. The emphasis is on personal exercise of justice. This means shunning all expressions of injustice and doing what you're able in your sphere of influence. 
He doesn't say make sure the whole society does justice. You do what's just in your world. No requirement, no expectation by God to change the whole world in which we live as much as we would all love to, but to make an impact and a difference in our world. If society changes because different people are changing, praise God. But our goal and mandate is personally doing justice. Can I give you a governing application over all this that James gives us in James 1.19? Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. In your conversations, in your Facebooking, in your Twittering, in your emailing, blogging, will you name it, can we be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger? My friend Kerry Hardy, preached in this pulpit many times, provided an excellent illustration recently for how we should think and be about this. I, I couldn't improve on it. Think about the difference between a raft and a ship. Think about a raft and a ship in open water with massive waves and a storm. High seas. A raft has almost no chance of staying upright and afloat in the midst of pounding waves, but a large ship merely rocks and rolls. We have a choice. Either our worldview causes us to be rafts tossed to and fro and flipped over every wind of news and doctrine, or we can be an ocean liner that God's theology, the good news of the gospel, the the solid theology of our Bibles keeps us anchored and these waves don't dislodge us. Because we're quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And by the way, that passage in James 1 is in the context of hearing God's word. That's what we're quick to hear. We live in the midst of a crooked and perverse world, Paul told the Philippians, among whom we appear as children of lights. And the reason we appear that way is we have God's perspective and God's hope with God's compassion and God's heart. You can certainly add more to this list, but I don't think you can have less. In our prayer, in our discussions, in our quiet times, let's circle our hearts around these realities and be these kind of people that God's word calls us to be. Let me pray.